Hello, and welcome to the Sasha Sessions, a Team USA podcast. I'm your host, Sasha Cohen, Olympic silver medalist in figure skating. Joining me this week is Molly Bloom, whose life inspired the movie Molly's Game. After retiring from competitive skiing, she ran an underground high-stakes poker game. She shares her story of reinvention to get where she is today. Welcome, Molly. I'm happy to be here. I want to set the stage for our conversation today. So I first heard about you from your brother, Jeremy Bloom, who was my Olympic teammate in 2002 and 2006. And he talked about your incredible drive and determination, no matter what you were working on. There have been so many chapters in your life that have led you to where you are today. But let's start at this pivotal moment when you were training for the Olympics as a competitive skier and how that time in your life ultimately set the stage for later events, including your book and the movie Molly's Game, where Jessica Chastain played you, perhaps what you're best known for today. Can you expand on that? Okay, sure. Um, You know, I was raised in a family in which there was a, a huge emphasis on both sports and academics. And my dad loved mobile skiing more than anything in the world. And so from a really young age, that was part of our deal. You know, every single weekend, we were the first on the list. And my dad, you know, just wanted us to ski as a family, but it turned into something a lot more. And Jeremy, my youngest brother, was just sort of this kid prodigy from an early age. And I really wanted to become a competitive skier too. So we all started competing locally. I started having some success. But at 12 years old, I got diagnosed with really severe onset scoliosis and my spine was curving at such an advanced rate that I was already starting to kind of uh, suffer lung function. So I had to go into this emergency surgery and what it included was straightening my spinal cord, um, fusing the top 11 vertebrae together to form a, a solid bone, and then sort of affixing the whole column together with these metal rods. And predictably, my, my doctors were like, you know, you need to come up with a new hobby. <laughs> Mobile skiing is not really in the cards for you anymore. And, you know, for a year, I had to rest and rehab my back. And, and, and my, it wasn't even rehab. It was just basically lie flat and let those fusions heal. And I was homeschooled. And, you know, my family was up skiing. And I felt for the first time in my life what it felt like to not be in the game. You know what I mean? To be on the bench. And I just hated it more than anything. And so I made this personal choice to sort of forego this advice and to start competing. And, and I worked really, really hard. Um, and I learned how to kind of play hurt, which I know you know about. And, you know, I, at 19 years old, I made the USD team. At 20, I was ranked third overall in North America. And at 21, and I made it to... Uh, this national U.S. Nationals, which that year was an Olympic qualifying event. And, you know, I was kind of at the top of my game and, and I was no Jeremy Bloom for sure, but I, I was showing real promise. And that contest, um, I had a pretty bad crash. And, you know, I, I just sort of had to reevaluate everything. I, I got a very stern talking to from, from the doctors and they said, look, you're really playing with your life here, you know, you've got all this metal hardware in your back and you're, and you're doing a sport that is so much impact and, and, and the stakes are so high. Uh, it's, it's really unwise. And so I sort of had to reevaluate my whole life. Um, 
And I was going to school at the time at University of Colorado and headed to law school. I mean, if you've seen Molly's game, I'm going to be really honest. Aaron Sorkin massively inflated my LSAT scores, but I did pretty well. And I was, um, you know, I was going to embark on the next chapter of my life, which was also going to be very regimented. Uh, I was applying to these top tier law schools and I, and I was very serious about it. Um, and so I decided that I was going to retire from skiing and in between uh, finishing and going to law school and, and retiring, which totally broke my heart. I just needed a year off. And so I decided I just wanted to go somewhere warm because we had been chasing winter our whole life. Even during the summers, we would train, um, you know, at, in places that had snow. And so I drove to LA just for it just for a year off, just for a year to breathe and to be young and to be a kid. And, um, you know, that's not what I found there. <laughs> I found a whole different sort of, yeah. Bef- before No, before we go into the, the next chapter, which is, is super yeah. exciting, correct me if I'm wrong, because a lot of my information is from the movie. <laughs> the, you know, just, yeah, just the fact that you decided to take those risks with your body after you'd had surgery mm-hmm. and the doctors were like, this is definitely not for you anymore. Mm-hmm. Not a diagnosis uh, or a judgment that you could accept, but then having this comeback almost kind of on the cusp of making the Olympic team there's this crazy story with the tiniest likelihood where you're skiing down, it's super icy, and you hit, is it a pine cone or a, um, like a, a pine needle that catches in your, in your ski? It was a little branch, yeah. So of anything you could hit, you were strapped in as tight as could be with your boot into your ski. You hit a tiny branch, and all of a sudden— your ski comes loose. What was going through your mind? And this is in this ultimate moment, deciding an Olympic team after you've already overcome so much with scoliosis and surgery and and this comeback. To me, that was just unbelievable, just the odds of that happening. Yeah, it was pretty crazy. I mean, you know, when, you know this, when, when you're in the air and you're about to crash, the only thing you're thinking about is how to, how to minimize harm. So you're trying to protect yourself. Um, and, you know, the, I guess I just kind of knew that day, you know, I'd been, I'd been skiing through so much pain and, and sort of felt like um, in some ways uh, I, I was close to plateauing in terms of my ability uh, to ski with what I was dealing with because I was constantly in pain, but I didn't want to accept it. And I guess that day I just got into acceptance, but it was, it broke my heart. I mean, it just devastated me. And I think that experience ultimately really set you up for these later events in your life. I can see anything, anyone that's heard you speak or read your book or seen the movie, can see many qualities of an Olympic athlete in you. The intensity, the focus, the huge goals, this need, this desire for significance and a big life. Yeah. Do you think that came from your family? And is this, 
I find there's different personality types and Jeremy certainly has it as well. I don't know if it's the the athlete's curse or if it's the greatest boon that we have is this intense drive to prove ourselves mm-hmm. to the world, to ourselves. There's a lot of pain and suffering, but for some reason we're somewhat crazy in in the tasks we choose to take on. And I'm just curious, I don't know where that came from for you, if, you, if you've been able to reflect and, and find that. Yeah, I mean, I feel like it was in me from a very young age. But if you look at the the path that my brothers and I took um, and who we became, it's very clear to me that it was also really socialized into us. We had a very, we have a very charismatic father who um, trained champions, truly. And not just champions in sports, but really inspired us and sometimes demanded that we would be in the pursuit of excellence at all times. Like there was no normal bike ride in our family. You know, it it was like the tour. (laughs) I mean, I remember Jeremy being on like a no speed bike driving up, you know, riding up Vail Pass. And it was like, you know, it, it was always intense chores school, everything was intense and everything was a game to win or lose. And so, you know, my youngest brother, Jeremy, is obviously an athletic phenom who not only is a world champion and went to two Olympics, but then went on to play in the NFL and then went on to, uh, you know, raise money and become a CEO for a tech startup and he's killing at that. My middle brother is a Harvard-educated cardiothoracic surgeon at one of the top hospitals in the world, you know, and and so I I have to look at that and think and and say um, this wasn't just us, you know, this was the environment, this was the parenting, and I'm not excluding my mom here. My mom molded us in significant ways, probably more important ways, in that she preached and taught and and cultivated kindness and a desire to be of service and a desire and a, 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 an insistence on integrity and dignity. And, and, you know, so we just had, we had this incredible combination um, of, of parenting and sometimes tough example of parenting. You know, like if you weren't excelling in my family, the sun was not shining on you. You know, and that was hard growing up, particularly being the one that didn't have this really um, defined skill set. You know, Jordan was a genius and Jeremy was an athletic phenom and I had to figure out where I fit in. Um, and, and you know, I, I think I compensated with drive. It seems like you had a good mix of drive and intellect and athletic capabilities, so... Perhaps in the long run, it's a a good mix. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, maybe at someone else's dinner table, I would have been the most impressive, but not at mine, girl. (laughs) Like I got this kid that's skipping, you know, years of math classes and testing into mine and getting better grades. And then Jeremy, who, you know, was just, you know, on on a football field, on on a ski course, like it's just, he's spectacular and I love my brothers and I'm better for being raised among two you know incredibly talented brilliant human beings but as a young kid who who wanted to matter 
it certainly put a fire in my belly to do something or be someone at any cost. And that got me in a lot of trouble. I can completely relate to that in, in, in a different way. I think not so much within my family, but within my sport. And it really mm-hmm. affects your mindset because your worth as a person becomes conditional. It really is predicated mm-hmm. on what you do and how you compare and measure up. So it really shifts the focus, the internal focus on who am I? What do I believe in? What are my goals and dreams? But how am I measuring up? Am I meeting expectations? Am I good enough? And I think that's something that I know you're doing some work on now, and I've certainly spent the last decade working on, but it's trying to disentangle my identity from my sport and trying to figure out who else I am besides that, which I'm sure you've done that already a couple times with identity as a skier and then leading and running basically the world's most prestigious high-stakes poker games and then now on a speaking tour at the Oscars and just so many interesting chapters that it's almost like you've been forced to constantly reinvent yourself. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, that's what happens when you um, mess up a lot. (laughs) You know, like you crash a lot, you crash and burn. You know, you've got to, you always have that choice, right? Am I going to stay down or am I going to get back up and, I guess, you know, I don't, I don't think anyone wants to stay down. In your case, what I find so interesting is not only, you know, I want to get to resilience a little bit later, but the lack of fear. And I think you said that that came from your dad, that he didn't allow fear and that fear is the greatest thief of your dreams and a fulfilling life. And I find that some people have huge aspirations, but it's the fear of failure or the fear of looking stupid that prevents them from really trying. And what I've seen over and over again in your life is, yeah, I might mess up. This didn't go my way from almost getting killed to being indicted. Many, many very, very dramatic, you know, on on a huge level. These were almost like opportunities for your next step. All the things that happened, getting injured allowed you to kind of explore the world of poker, which then allowed you to write a book, which turned into a movie that went to the Oscars. And so each, as you say, mess up or new life chapters led to something somewhat more amazing. (laughs) Um, Yeah, and what a great revelation for everybody, right? That, and you never know it in the moment, in the moment when, you know, you you crash or you're diagnosed with uh, a life-altering sort of situation or, um, someone steals your business or the FBI arrests you at gunpoint or the Russian mob or telling like all these crazy weird things um, that seem like, Oh God, this is the end. You know, this is the end of, of, of my life. Um, and, and you grieve it and it's heartbreaking and everything. Um, I think that that pain and that fear of, of the end can be converted into incredibly prolific fuel to go bigger and better um, the next time around. And, and, you know, I, I think that that's, I think those big high stakes emotions are really powerful and when used the right way can just catalyze an incredible next chapter. For people that aren't familiar, I want to set the stage a little bit. You said you moved to LA 
and you're deciding to take a year <laughs> off law school because you've had a very intense childhood. You've been training for the Olympics, dealing with mm-hmm. incredible pain and back surgeries. And your life takes a, a random turn and you somehow begin <laughs> working at a one of like the highest stakes poker games in LA. And I guess at that time it may not have been the highest stakes, but it was still super prestigious. There were celebrities. Yeah. There were so many iterations. And if anyone's seen the movie, of course you're familiar. But from the game in LA to taking on your own game to moving the game to New York, what did you learn along the way? And just tell us kind of in those first few months, opening your eyes to the world of poker, something you weren't familiar with at all, what what that was like. Sure. Um, so I ended up serving drinks at a poker game. Um, and at this particular poker game, there were A-list actors. It was Leonardo DiCaprio and Tobey Maguire and Ben Affleck. But there are also um, billionaires, politicians, uh, the head of one of the biggest movie studios, hedge fund manager, uh, rock star, you know, just this, this eclectic mix of people who mattered in the world, who moved the needle in the world. And so my first night doing it, what I realized is, holy crap, this is um, an, an opportunity that a 24-year-old kid from Loveland, Colorado doesn't get. This is proximity to intimate proximity to capital information and 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 power and to me the information in the beginning was the most fascinating you know to be able to tap into these people's brains be a fly on the wall and then over the next couple months I started to realize um how lucrative it was and wow this could be so powerful if I could own this game. This is a this is networking a networking rocket ship, you know. And and on top of that, this game had such immense hold over these people that if I owned it, um, I could tap into some power. You know, moving to LA, I never felt so small and so insignificant, so unimportant. I think it's the, the great fantasy of the powerless to try to find power and. I kind of saw all these opportunities, this, this is this giant opportunity. And so, you know, I, I studied the game, I learned the game, and I started to figure out how I could create my own game that would trump all the other games in town. And um, a year later, I did that, and I ran these games in LA and New York for about seven and a half years, most of the time doing it legally, making $4 million a year, you know, just crazy money for a, for a young kid. Um, actually, it's not that crazy anymore. There's like 21 year old billionaires now, but at that time, for me, <laughs> it's all relative. It's, it's all relative. You know, I went from like cocktail waitress salary to this. And um, ultimately I lost myself to tell you the truth. I, I, I became really sort of consumed with greed. Um, towards the end and and the more disease you know it's never enough it's never enough which is always the great danger of of unbridled ambition you know and um and so I ended up getting uh pretty addicted to pills and alcohol um you know I was taking like 
Adderall or speed to stay up for all the, you know, crazy hours of the game and then downers to come down and to deal with the massive anxiety of the life that I'd created. You know, by this time I was the bank, I was bankrolling these games. They were the biggest games in the world. I was not only the owner and operator, I was the financial institution. I was covering people's losses. I was dealing with the Italian and the Russian mob. I mean, it was, you know, it was just crazy time. And um, like I said, I just lost my way. And then something happened up until this point, you know, there's, there's a couple things that happened. You know, my, my, my attorneys had always advised me not to take a rake, meaning a percentage of every pot. Um, and towards the end, my debt sheet was so gigantic that I started taking a rake to sort of compensate for all the, you know, for the stiff people stiffing you the, the money. And, and then something changed, which was up until this point, um, this, the federal statute on running an illegal gambling business pertained to games of chance, not games of skill. And you could argue very strongly that poker is a game of skill. You know, you don't have like a crap world championship, um, but you do have poker world champions. And, and so it, poker had traditionally been excluded from this charge. 2010 in the Eastern District, um, the government appealed this and uh, someone was convicted, um, which set precedent that poker is now part of this charge. So it was a perfect storm of, of, of my recklessness and sort of bad luck. And, um, you know, in 2011, my assets were seized. And in 2014, I was arrested at gunpoint by 17 FBI agents and um, federally indicted. And I was looking at 10 years in prison. I was 33 years old. And, and you know, man, I think so much of what we we strive for is freedom. Um, and and so when when you're looking at that being taken away, there's really nothing else that comes close or, or has in my life. And and you know, on top of that, in 33, 10 years, that's the rest of my uh, young adulthood. Those are my childbearing years. Those are my you know my years of 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 setting up a foundation and a life and it was it was terrifying um and then you know just to kind of wrap it up uh the feds wanted me to become a confidential informant they thought that i had the trust of these people and they were they weren't really interested in the mobsters they were interested in the politicians and the people on wall street and the celebrities and they wanted me to wear a wire and get some information for them and also disclose to them anything I knew about people doing shady things. And, and, you know, they said, if I did that, they would give all my money back and they would give me immunity from prison. And, um, you know, I, I really, I just couldn't do it um, because I had come to accept the fact that this was entirely my fault, that I grew up in a family in which I had, all the opportunity anyone could ever want. And I had made this choice and that I needed to stand for the consequences of my choices. And so ultimately I turned down this deal and got really lucky, didn't get sentenced to prison. And, um, you know, that's kind of where the the poker part ended. I have so many follow-up questions. Uh, So I'll try to, (laughs) I'll try to jump in piece by piece. These games, the stakes were huge. The buy-ins were at one point two hundred and fifty thousand dollars was the initial buy-in. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. 
And I think I also read that at one point someone lost $100 million in a night. That's true. And so how, and I, and I assume this goes partly into the decision to take it from a legal game to an illegal game by taking a rake. Was that just because you weren't able, again, I think the tabloids have often portrayed you as an attractive woman in a miniskirt serving drinks, but you were the owner, the operator, the bank, the brains behind this entire operation. And can you explain a little bit why you felt like you needed to take a rake at that point? Was it because of the size of the game? Um, was it because people were not paying their debts? What what exactly factored in? Yeah, I mean, but ultimately, I think it was because I was getting reckless and I was extending too much credit and I was putting people in seats that probably shouldn't have been playing. So I could point to a million external factors, but it really almost always comes down to the choices that I was making. And and I, I was reckless. You know, I, I had sort of lost touch with all things that were real and good. I didn't have a real relationship with my family at, that, at this time. Um, I stopped having, like, real friends. Um, it was just all poker all the time. And like I said, I was drinking a lot. I was taking mind mood altering substances and I just got reckless. And before we get to the end of the story, there's this scene in the movie where a mobster shows up to your apartment. You open the door thinking it's a doorman with packages. You are badly beat up. You have a gun put in your mouth. Your safe is emptied out. Just the sheer terror of that that mm-hmm. moment. You couldn't go to the police. You didn't go to the hospital. Right. That moment really kind of stands out until how difficult things got and how tough you were in dealing with that. And what was going through your mind at that time? Oh, it was really dark. Um, you know, uh, some some guys claiming to be part of uh, being claiming to be part of one of the Italian families came to me and, and basically told me that if I wasn't willing to give them a piece of my game, that I couldn't operate my business anymore. And I certainly wasn't, I was making bad choices, but I wasn't about to go into business with the Italian wall. <laughs> Even I had my heart stopped. <laughs> and um, so they sent someone to my house to send a, a, a more intense message. And, um, you know, the first thing I thought of when, this guy came into my apartment and put a gun in my mouth and you could feel it like in your mouth, like, you know, like against your teeth um, was how do I survive this? You know? Like, and that's when I was like, I have a safe and it has a lot of money and jewelry, and, you know? And, and yeah, that, that was compelling to him, but basically he was there to scare me into submission and, and he beat me up and he, you know, stuck a gun in my mouth and basically said like, we know where your family is and, all the stuff, you know, like in the movies. And, um, but when he left and I'm sitting there and I'm bleeding and my face feels like it's deformed and, um, I'm terrified and I'm sad and I'm scared. Um, realizing that there's nobody I can call because I'm so terrified because they said, you know, the guy said, if you tell anyone, I know where your family lives. Um, that I, I realized how alone, just completely alone I was and how 
you know, it seemed cool for a while to be in this fringe, like outside of society. And that was the moment that it stopped being cool, you know, that stopped being cute and it stopped being like fun and glam. And like, it was just terrifying. Um, and, you know, I, the next part of that was, what do I say to them when they call? Now, do I have to go into business with the Italian mob? Like, we know how that story ends. And so I just stayed in my apartment, you know, because I couldn't go outside because I was afraid the doorman would call the police. I mean, I looked like a mess. And um, three weeks went by, and I'm just so confused why I'm not hearing from them again, you know? And the third week, it was, it was January 10th, I think, um, 2011 or 2010. Um, anyway, got the New York Times and said on the cover, the biggest mob-related takedown in New York City history um, just went down. And so I guess they got swept up in that um, or there was too much heat on the street. I don't know. I never heard from them again. I got so lucky with that one because, you know, the real dilemma was what, what do I say now? It's not an option for me to turn this down there they mean business in a way that like I don't know how to deal with. Wow. That's just at a completely another level. And if, if that wasn't enough, I'm not sure exactly the timeline, but you had another moment a little different where perhaps of similar intensity being arrested at gunpoint with 17 federal agents yeah. with semi-automatic weapons lights in your face, you're sentenced to 10 years in prison, and and all your assets are seized. And again, in a completely different way, what's going through your mind at that time? It's hard to quantify terrifying, but it was terrifying in a much different way. It was terrifying because now there's literally no one that can protect you from what's going on because it's the United States government, you know? Um, with the other, the mob stuff, like I could have always like reached out to authorities at some point and sort of, you know, had that as a solution. But now you're just like, I'm, you know, the, the indictment reads United States of America versus Molly Bloom. You know, that's where you're at now. And there was so much I didn't understand about it. For example, I hadn't run a game for two years. I didn't know that they were building a case against me for two years. Um, you know, I kind of like locked everything because I seized my assets in 2011. So I locked all my money, you know, was put out of business and, and, uh, had to put my life back together or start to. And I had done that for the last two years. I got sober. Um, you know, I, I had gotten a job finally, moved back to LA and seven days later, you know, it was this, this really, like crazy takedown. I mean, it was kind of funny. I was like, you guys, this is a bit excessive. It's, it's myself and a beagle. You know, they're like, is there anyone else in the apartment? Are there any guns? And I'm like, no, it's just my beagle and me. You know, not, we're not that kind of criminals. Um, but I, you know, I just didn't know how to fight this because A, I don't have any money. And B, I, there's so much I don't know. The government has literally been plotting and and putting it like d- developing a case against you for two three years and you're just like out of the blue um you know sort of just thrown on you so 
it was it was super stressful. Is this the point where you realize that you're going to have immense attorney fees and you've had all your assets seized and you kind of think the only thing that I can do now is write the story of my life? Is that kind of where yeah. your life turns into into a book? Yeah. So, I mean, after I got sentenced, I kind of started writing the book, messing around with it or whatever. Um, but my lawyers were like, you cannot publish this book right now. You are now being federally indicted. You cannot write a book about the crime <laughs> and have it be used for evidence. And I was like, I get that. That seems fair. Um, but when I got sentenced and it was, you know, I didn't have to go to jail and, and everything like, I was like, all right, now, now I'm free to operate, you know? And I, I kind of put that entrepreneurial or that athletic or whatever that, that, that determined thinking cap on. And I'm like, how do I win? You know, how do I get out from under this? What's the monetizable asset? Like, how do I emerge from this? And, you know, I had a ton of reputational harm. Like I said, like you mentioned, all the tabloids were reporting the story as this sort of Heidi Flight type character. Um, when I knew that what I had done, maybe you didn't agree with it, maybe it wasn't noble, but I built a badass business, you know, and, and I had acumen and there should be some job that I could get in the future. So I, I needed reputational um, repair. I was millions of dollars in debt because not only did the Fed seize my assets, the IRS taxed me on the income I made that year, which was seized by the DOJ. So I owed millions of dollars in back taxes. Um, and, you know, I, I was like, well, I think the way out of this mess is the story, you know, I, and so I wrote a book. The publishers wanted this, you know, celebrity takedown piece, which I wasn't willing to write. And as a consequence, most publishers passed on me, all of them, all of them except one. And I got a pretty small advance. But I wrote the book because I wanted to own the intellectual property because I knew I wanted to take it to Hollywood. And then when I took it to Hollywood, it was really tough in the beginning because every, no one wanted to touch this. You know, there were so many powerful people in Hollywood and in finance that were part of these games and were just very determined to not let this movie get made. And so I came up against a lot of resistance um, and people told me, like, no one's ever going to make this movie. Um, but I just kept, I really believed in it, you know, I really did. And I had this short list of writers who, when they sign on to do a project, kind of the, you know, the water's part. Um, and Aaron Sorkin was on the top of that list. And, you know, Aaron wrote The West Wing and Moneyball, A Few Good Men, Social Network. And he's, he's always been my favorite writer. And I really wanted a meeting with him and it was not easy to get. Um, finally, someone asked him for a personal favor and I flew to LA and I pitched him and he listened. And <laughs> it's really funny what he said. He, I like finished telling my story and I'm trying to look at his face for, for his response. And he was just like, well, I'll tell you one thing. I've never met someone so that I'm love to pull up themselves. <laughs> and I think, yeah, because you know, you expect someone, I guess, in that position, you're they're living with their mom, they're broke, you know, that they've been trashed in the tabloids. You expect someone to be meek and, you know, like, and I, I just wasn't. In some ways, losing everything was the most liberating thing that has ever happened to me because we talk about 
you know, going out into the world and having your your sort of barometer um, be positioned to interpret what the rest of the world is thinking of you. And, and that's a really, that's a hard dance, you know, to always be concerned and, and to have your identity sewn to what everyone in the world is thinking about you. And so when I lost everything and, you know, went through everything I did, like nobody, you know, like I stopped feeling that way. And it was this liberating moment where I was like, screw it. <laughs> you know, now it's just between myself and, you know, the universe. And so I had this strange brand of confidence, like a true confidence. And I think that that's what he was referring to. Anyway, so I was like, so are you in Sorkin? And he was. Um, and he decided to not only write the movie, but make it, his, make it his directorial debut. And it did extremely well. And, you know, we got nominated for Oscars and BAFTAs and Golden Globes. And it was, you know, it was, it was a really cool, really, really cool thing, thing for sure. I love how you tell the story so matter-of-factly. It's just absolutely surreal with some of the highest <laughs> highs, having your life made into a movie, the red carpet, the Oscars, and yet the lowest lows where you're beat up by the mob, you're going to jail, you've had all your assets seized, you don't know anyone in Hollywood, and yet you're sure that you can find Aaron Sorkin and then have a meeting with him. And I'm sure, you know, there were so many countless no's on the way to that. But you just oh, yeah. you just relentlessly persisted, and and maybe that came from this fearless mindset that you've talked about. And I think it's such a really interesting concept that it's a crisis mode mindset that you had because your life was in crisis, but something that you're really trying to cultivate now without the crisis. And what is it? Is it just that all the expectations fall away? Is it this fight or flight? Was it the people that came into your life at that time to help you redirect your focus and what matters? But it just really seems like you were in complete survival mode and it made you absolutely fearless. Yes, it did. And let me just be really clear about something. I'm not a fearless person. I was actually a pretty scared little kid. I just was trained from a young age, and I think anybody can do this. I was trained from a young age to move through fear, you know, and and. And I still, you know, like I was watching that free solo documentary and like, I was like, wow, but you know, he has no fear. Truly. He doesn't, he doesn't experience it. I most certainly do like on a daily basis. I just have tools, you know, and, and I, um, I'm really passionate about imparting those tools. My tools in the first part of my life was pain. And, dis- and, and, and a bit of dysfunction. It was like, I don't feel like I'm anybody and I, I need to be someone, you know? And when, when I, you know, when my life blew up and I had that liberating moment of literally everyone thinking I was the biggest loser, <laughs> I was like, this is kind of awesome in a way, you know? And so, but then I didn't have that pain to motivate me and I didn't, I didn't feel like I needed to be somebody and so then I had to come up with new strategies to move through fear and to tap into ambition and tap into power and like these new strategies and tools are I wish I had them a long time ago you know because they're worth that it's you know it's it's meditation it's it's self-investigation it's being of service it's making your life about something bigger it's all these things that I had no 
time for when I was younger, you know, that have just really radically altered um, the way I relate to the world and the way I live my life and have given me an ability to master fear and, and to uh, be ambitious in a way where I'm still enjoying my life, you know, um, and I'm, and I'm okay with who I am inside, which is to me totally revolutionary. Just to get a little bit more granular, what is the crisis mode mindset? Because again, you've talked about wanting to to sustain that without having your life be in crisis. Is it just that it takes away the, maybe not that it takes away the fear, but it gives you the ability to push through much more easily because yeah. the stakes are higher? Yeah. Or how would you describe that feeling? For me, crisis mode mindset was laser focused. Um, everything on the line. So when problems come up or uh, obstacles come up, they're never going to stop you because everything's on the line. Your survival is on the line. You know, it's not like normal where a, a normal scenario where if something seems a bit too hard, maybe you just go a different direction. This was like, I don't come at me. I don't really care what's coming at me. I'm going to go over it, go under it, blast through it. Like it's just this total laser focused mindset, not a lot of distractions because I had no life, <laughs> you know? Um, and then also uh, nothing to lose because I pretty much lost it all. So there was freedom, there was focus and there was, it was like, it like it, tenacity doesn't even cover it. It, it was like, there's no, if there's breath in my lungs, um, I'm going to get there, you know? I, I love that because I think when we think we have something to lose, it just, whether it's our image or our reputation or the possibility of failure, it just really constricts who we can become. And I think it's something that as children, we're the least susceptible to because we haven't internalized society's vision of what is success. Totally. That's why kids want to be like rocket scientists and, you know, like there's no limit to their dreams. And and going on to success, I want to, because I know it's changed a lot for me, but how has your definition of success changed for you over the years, perhaps as a 19 or 25-year-old to the woman you are today? Success for me has changed a lot. Um, I guess I would have defined, you know, I was looking for freedom and power and prestige when I was younger. And so the details of what it was didn't concern me as much, you know, and and I had to get, I got to this point where I looked around at this empire I had created and it was not okay. You know, I was basically, um, I created this environment where, where, addicts could come and, and, you know, exercise their addiction. I mean, so many people that played at these games at that level were gambling addicts. And I just, you know, it started to just make me sick, but I didn't know how to leave. Um, and so this time around, the details matter a lot to me. Um, I need to do something that has meaning and purpose, for sure. Because I got real sick doing the other stuff, just caring about money and prestige and glamour glamour and you know power like that I mean look at the end I was ultimately alone beaten up 
addicted to drugs and penniless. Like there's no question to me where that road goes for me, you know? So this time around, um, anything I pursue has to have meaning and purpose. It has to contribute good to the world as opposed to uh, um, what I was doing before, which I felt net net had a really negative effect. Um, And, you know, I also include in my definition or my matrix of success, like, am I being a good daughter? Am I being a good wife? Am I being a good friend? Am I being a good sister? Am I being a good human being? Am I helping other women in, in AA and NA overcome their addiction? Like, you know, who am I being in the world? This is as critical to me as how much money I'm making. Um, and, and so, it, you know, it's just a, it's a more mature, I think, broader vision of it. We're certainly shaped by our experiences. And as I say, youth is, is wasted on the young. <laughs> and and I, I think, you know, in that moment, no one wants to be beat up by the mob, strung out, addicted to drugs, have the some of the low experiences you've had in your life. But at speaking to you and hearing your story, I can see how much that's shaped you and helped you transcend to this next level of of what you're doing and how you see yourself within the world. And and I think a lot of that's wrapped around identity. And I think starting with the mindset of a super focused competitive athlete, you know, you can't help but be focused very internally on how you're doing and if you're good enough and if you're fast enough. And identity and purpose are a big theme on this podcast and also for me in my life as I'm trying to decouple the Olympic figure skater with who Sasha is as a person. And I know that for you, not only as a skier, but then running these incredible games gave you this identity, which was why it was probably so hard to step away from. So today, I know you're you're speaking around the world. You talk about what it's like to have your life fall apart. Where does your, your sense of identity come from today? Do you need to have one or have you learned that it can be more fluid and you don't have to be something? Yeah, I struggle with it. You know, I mean, I, I've redefined it. Right. And I, I am really um, steadfast about checking in with, with people, with myself, but also with people that I, I trust a, a sponsor and AA, my family, like checking in with them to make, to make sure that, I'm not just becoming a, a nihilistic, you know, like psychotically ambitious person again. Um, but that it burns inside of me, you know, like I'm sure it, it, there's that desire for greatness. But this time around, I just have to make sure that that desire for greatness is aligned with um, making the world a better place. And that's a really exciting proposition for me, like to be able to take the tenacity that I've cultivated, the the strategic mind that I've been forced to sort of um, create through all the trials and tribulations of my my life, and to be able to focus this and and the create you know the sort of creative entrepreneurial uh, energy to be able to focus all that on solutions. And, uh, you know, betterment for the world is a super, super, super exciting proposition for me. And it's what, 
you know, really interesting to me right now. And it started out with a book tour, kind of quoting the message and, and, um, and then a speaking tour. And, you know, now I'm writing another book and, um, and talks to produce this documentary. And my husband's a neuroscientist and he's also in recovery. He overcame being a, basically a homeless IV drug user and decided to go back to school and got, you know, a 3.8 and now is studying neuroscience and addiction. And so we're both very fascinated and passionate with how you change your, your brain and how you change your experience and how you um, improve your life. And so we're, we're also developing this app that brings to people everything that we've learned through 12 steps and meditation and neuroscience. And so it's really exciting to me to be able to be in a position where I can, you know, sort of focus all this crazy ambitious energy on something that could actually bring good and change to the world. That's so incredible, weaving together all those narratives and lessons that you've learned. And is that what your book is about? Is it kind of about addiction and purpose and and redefining yourself? It's really about overcoming odds um, and inventing or reinventing yourself. Um, And, you know, I think it's both for people who are sort of in it, you know, in the struggle, and also for people who just want kind of a, a, a guide to how you really significantly change your life, change your brain, change the way you relate to the world. You know, I, I, I think a large audience that I care to speak to is women because um, I think we have a specific experience and sometimes walk around with a lot of, you know, lack of self-worth and sort of pain and look to other places like men or, you know, social media or whatever to try to fill that those holes and like I'm very passionate about imparting different strategies on how to how to feel whole and complete without these sort of you know detrimental dysfunctional ways so I think it's really and then you know I'm still kind of talking about the message but it's really like a memoir that picks up after sentencing and putting my life back together, but also a, a how-to, you know. Obviously, I'm still sort of in the ideation phase because I'm not articulating <laughs> very well, but I got a lot of thoughts, Sasha. <laughs> no, I think if anyone has the life experience, it's you and the resilience. So I think this would be, you know, very helpful because on social media everywhere we see highlight reels and we see success yeah, everywhere. Yeah. And so to kind of, you know, show the insides and what it's like to to overcome adversity and odds, I think it's just much more realistic and inspiring. So you'll definitely have to let me know when yeah. when that comes out. I'd love to read it. I, I for sure will. Yeah. And I also, when I, anytime that I was like embarking on a new chapter or that I had blown my life up or that I was trying to do something that was very difficult, um, I always wanted a how-to, and all I, and the, the most of what I found were these like sort of inspirational but empty quotes, or you know like things that like could change my mindset temporarily, but that lacked a program of action. And so what I want to bring to people is a program of action uh, on sort of how you approach 
big goals, big dreams, uh, how you put your life back together, or how you go for it for the first time. Because I do think that there's a program of action that I have cultivated over the years that's been, you know, that 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 can be really imparted to anyone. Well, this has been super interesting. And of course, how could it not be with your life story and everything you've been through and just the wisdom, right, that it's brought you over the years. And that kind of brings me to my last question, which I ask everyone on the podcast, whether they're athletes or not. It's what is your Olympic moment? I've asked writers and different inspirational figures this question, as well as athletes. And it it really is this moment in your life that kind of stands out as this turning point or this culmination or this realization. You know, it can be anything. And so I'm wondering what it is for you. Oh, there's there's no doubt in my mind what this is for me. Um, So the movie, I, you know, I was living with my mom. I I had no home. I had no money or whatever. And, you know, I, I was waiting for the movie to get made. It doesn't happen overnight, you know. And I got a call from the studio. And and during this time, um, you know, I was kind of depressed and anxious. And I had gone back to using um, some mind mood-altering substances to sort of deal with my life. I was just saying to myself the whole time, when this movie comes out, I'm going to be okay. You know, and I get a call from the studio. And it's my producer. And he's a very, like, sort of stoic person. And he said, Molly, the movie's made. And it's a beautiful film. It's beautiful. And it's important. And he's like, and the second thing he said to me was, and we just sent the bank wire. And I had become, in crisis mode, really good at negotiating. So I'd really given myself a chance financially. And I waited for the feeling to come in to be okay. You know, I waited for the depression to lift, for the anxiety to go away. I waited for it and it didn't come. And it was in that moment that I realized that everything I knew about success once and for all was wrong, you know, and about fulfillment. And that was when I really embarked on this sort of meditation, self-investigation, practicing the 12 steps, like, you know, uh, with, with, with consistency, a principled life. Like that is when I knew, that's when I leaned into that way of life. And that's changed things for me more than any movie, any, you know, World Cup, anything. That's a pretty powerful moment. I can I can only imagine yeah. Yeah. being in your shoes at that time. Well, thank you so much for sharing. I know our audience is going to love your insight and just how honest and vulnerable you are throughout all these highs and lows throughout your life. Thank you so much for joining me today for this podcast. And I'm excited. Yeah, it's, it's an honor. Oh, well, I'm excited to see next steps for you to read your book and just knowing what I know about you in the first half of your life. I'm very excited to see the next few chapters of Molly Bloom. Thanks, girl. I appreciate it. Please subscribe to Sasha Sessions wherever you get your podcasts. You can find new episodes every Monday. Produced by Bigfoot Music and Sound in New York City.